if you were to break down in your car, you leave church today, your car breaks down, how many of you would think, I'm going to fix this myself? Let me see your hands. Okay, we have some, some people. No, those are the people that are, that are unusual right there. How many of you would take your car to a, some type of auto mechanic because he's got more expertise and all of that stuff? You don't have time, energy? Let me see your hands. Come on, come on. All right, so most of us would take our car to someone to get it fixed. Now, here's the deal. Um, how many of us drive around almost every day wishing that our car will never break down? This, this is what I mean. We actually have this secret hope that we can drive our car from now until Jesus comes and never have to make any repairs on it. How many of you are like that? You want the car to fill itself. You want the car to service itself, you know, right? Okay. Now, we don't just do that with cars, though. We do that with any major appliance in our home. How many of you, you know, hope that your air conditioner never goes out, right? Because that's a very, that's a major expense. How many of you hope that your, your appliances in your kitchen or your, your laundry room never run out, right? We do that. We hope they will never die. We don't plan for the fact that they're going to die. A couple of years ago, our washing machine just went kaput. And I don't know why it did. I couldn't have foreseen this. I bought this my washer and dryer as a set before Janie and I got married. Janie and I have been married 20 years. So a couple of years ago, we were about 18 years. My washing machine had been going for 18 years. Who knew it was going to break down? I, I certainly didn't. Praise God, Janie had a plan. and She'd been stashing away cash for a couple of years because she was smarter than me. She knew it was going to die. And so we were able to go buy cash and, and get what we wanted, you know, all of that stuff whenever it, it did break down. Now, the dryer is still going. My dryer bought from Sears, it's a Kenmore, is 21 years old. Pre-Janie. Sucker's working good. Who in their right mind would expect this thing to last another 21 years? Anyone? Anyone besides me? I mean, I think that's what should happen. It should last 21 years. Lay hands on it, pray over it. I don't know what you do. Cast demons out of it. But it should last another 21 years, right? No, only a fool doesn't plan for what they know is going to happen. Well, let's apply this to relationships. I think it's foolish for us not to plan for relationships to break down because they're going to. And so smart people, who wants to be smart? Four of you. Okay, no, there's more than that. Smart people are going to plan for what to do when a relationship breaks down. And that's what we're going to look at today. Jesus has given us a very clear set of instructions in his relationship manual. It's what we call the Bible. And um, it is in Matthew 18, 15. If you have your Bibles or if you have a smartphone with a Bible app on there, Steve Bryant just got his Bible app today. So I expect him to at least attempt. I'm not sure he can pull it up, but, um, but he can at least attempt to pull up those verses. So if you have that, go ahead and, and get there. Let me sum up what Jesus says to us in these verses. And I think I've got this uh, for the screen. When another person wrongs you, when there is conflict, not, not if, when there is conflict, you go to the other person in private and discuss the problem so that the relationship is restored. Of all the teachings of Jesus, I think this is the one we disobey the most. It's the one we ignore the most. We come up with reasons, sometimes good reasons, or at least reasons that sound good to disobey our Savior. So what I want to do is I want to read Jesus' words today. We're going to go through this passage and we're going to go step by step what Jesus says to do to fix a broken relationship. And smart people will pay attention to what the Son of God had to say. Matthew 18, starting at verse 15. 
If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. This was an Old Testament law. You could not convict someone in a court of law unless they had at least two witnesses. It was better to have three witnesses. So Jesus is going all the way back to God's word in the Old Testament. He's saying this principle still applies. If you can't work it out, you take one or two witnesses to go with you uh, on, on this journey. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. All right, let's break this down step by step. Step one, Jesus says, when relationships break down, step one, here it is. Admit there is conflict. And some of you are going, well, that seems kind of stupid. Well, let me hang on just a minute. Every action we take in life starts with a decision. Before you ever go and exercise, you have to make a decision that you're going to go exercise. Before you ever go on a date, you have to make a decision that you're going to go on a date. Before you ever do what Jesus says here, you have to admit that there is a conflict. Resolving and restoring relationships starts with a decision. An acknowledgement that something happened, I was hurt, and and that I've got to go to them. See, people fight. Have y'all figured that out? People fight. We're going to fight. Conflict is everywhere in the Bible, even in the first church, even among Jesus' first 12 followers. They argued over who was the greatest in the kingdom of God. Conflict happens to everybody, whether they're a Christ follower or not. Wouldn't it be cool if when you gave your life to Christ, when you moved into God's family, that you had no more conflict ever? Wouldn't that be awesome? But that's not reality. And the Bible is filled with with conflict and and what we're going to do, what we're supposed to do in... um, Because of that conflict to restore relationships. Reality is even believers still have this seed of selfishness deep down in our hearts that jumps up and bites us and injects our relationships with poison from time to time. We're going to fight. The question is, how are you going to fight? Good Christians fight fair. Bad Christians fight dirty. Good Christians, and by good I mean mature, not not the ones who pretend that's not, that's not my definition of good. Mature Christians stay at it until there is a resolution of the conflict. And, and what happens is when you, when you stay until there's a resolution, it actually draws you closer to the other person. Bad Christians, what I mean is immature Christians, they're just trying to win the fight. And, there's, and when they, whenever they win the argument, it ends up causing greater distance between them. There can't be intimacy when you're fighting with someone and trying to win the argument. And, and for good Christians, a conflict will expose their character. You think back to, to things you've seen in churches. When there, is, when there is a mature Christ follower who is in conflict, you see the character of Christ. But bad Christians, immature Christians, what you see is their immaturity whenever a conflict goes on. And, and this is real clear. Um, what Jesus says. And so what I want to know today is which category do you fit into? Are you a mature Christ follower? Are you a good Christ follower? Are you immature? Are you a bad Christ follower? And I'm not trying to guilt you at all, but I'm trying to say we've got to be different in the church if we're going to win this community to Christ. Jesus said your love for one another will prove. That is the proof that we are Christ followers. And one of the ways that you love other believers is you, you reconcile with them. So first, you admit there's a conflict, you admit conflict's going to happen, you have a plan. Second, you go. The emphasis is very clearly on you. 
And that's not a cheap car made uh, several years ago. I'm talking about you. What I want you to do is I want you to go back above that word you that you just wrote down. I want you to put the word I, the letter I. I am the one who is supposed to go. When there's conflict, I acknowledge it and I go to the person. But there's a very good possibility that you don't want to go. I don't want to go to the person. They should come to me. They wronged me. Why do I always have to make the first step? Why does he always have to be so stubborn and mule-like? That's the G-rated version because we're in the church. Some of you have those thoughts, right? And you haven't said mule-like. Jesus puts the burden on you whether you are the one being hurt or whether you're the one hurting the other person. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever. And he says this, if you enter a place of worship and are about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a believer has against you. Abandon your offering, leaving, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. Who did the offending in this scenario? You did. If, if you are at church, you, we have a joy basket at the back. And our church members, regular tenders know they're supposed to give their offerings there. And so in, in every church I'd been in before this one, we always pass the offering plate, that type of thing. But the Bible says if you are about to place your offering in the plate or in the basket as we have, and you're doing that, you remember that another person has something against you or that you've offended someone. Jesus says it's the one time that it's okay to leave church, to leave worship in the middle of worship. It's so important that he says, now this is kind of cool, leave your offering. Because a lot of us are like, oh, just stick it in our pocket. Leave your offering, go to the person, make things right. Then you're ready to come back and worship God. Community, closeness is so important to Jesus that he says, get your tail up from church, go make things right. And then maybe your worship will take off to another level. If you'll obey me. Now, we're going to talk about some other things, so hang on. Um, isn't this the opposite of what we do? The Bible says until you've made the attempt, you really shouldn't be worshiping. What we'd rather do is stay and stew. It's more fun for me to, to pout about the conflict and rehearse the terrible injustices you've done to me. How hast thou harmed me? Let me count the ways. When I was a teenager, we were at youth camp, and, and I was a punk. I mean, I should have been sent home. They should have beaten me. You know, I was a punk, and so I didn't put up with any of that when I became a youth minister. But this one time, I was a punk, and my youth minister came to me the next day, and he goes, Doug, man, I just got to tell you how much I love you. And he said, I, I know God has something for your life, and I love you, and I forgive you. And I was so angry. I was like, how dare you love me? I mean, this is, this is 16 years old. And that night, after being preached to all day, God just totally broke my heart. And that night I stood up in my youth group and I told this story. And I said, and I looked at my youth minister and I said, dude, your love for me changed me. And, and that's the year, if I'm remembering correctly, that's the year that God called me into ministry. Because someone dared to love me enough and come to me in spite of myself and say, I love you and I know we're going to be okay and I know God has something for you. Pretty, pretty powerful when we do what God says. But we don't want to go because um, I'd rather 
I'd rather count and count the ways you've hurt me. I'd rather pout than, than go because here's really the bottom line. We're afraid to go because we don't know what's going to happen and we're afraid of the unknown. We assume confrontation has to be negative, right? How many of you, when you think of confrontation, you think it has a negative connotation? Let me see your hand, right? Especially those of you who have the sweet uh, serving personalities. Janie will tell you she'd rather vomit than confront somebody. She hates confrontation. But it doesn't have to be negative according to what Jesus is saying. We're afraid that, that if we go, something bad might be happening. I'm, I might make it worse, right? Or what we actually do is we assume the other person is not mature enough to handle my coming. That's really what we're saying. We don't say it out loud, but it's really, if I have a problem with Chad and I don't go to Chad, what I'm really saying is Chad, in my mind, is such an immature person that he couldn't handle me coming to him. That's, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? By the way, I don't think that, brother. Chad's a good friend. So we've got to go. And this step, this go step is where most relationships break down. And you need to know if you go, you might not do it very well. I've had people in this church come to me when, when there's something. I didn't even know I'd hurt them. And they come to me and, and you can tell when someone has been praying and someone's heart is broken. And they come to you and, and they kind of stammer over their words. And, you know, I, I just I got to tell you this. And I don't know how to say this. And, and I, you hurt me. When somebody comes to me with the right attitude, it totally disarms me. And then whatever they want to say, they have full access to my heart. Now, you come at me like a punk. There's enough sin nature and punkness in me that I'll punk right back in your face. No testimonies. This is not testimony time. Thank you. I mean, seriously, there's that sin nature and you come at me and you attack me. My very first thing is I'm going to attack you right back. That is my sin nature. But you come at me in the right spirit and you can completely waste me emotionally because you have access to my heart. So we have to go regardless. The important thing is not that you do it perfectly. Most of us don't know how to do it perfectly. The important thing is Jesus said, go. So you go. And, and why is this such a big deal to Jesus? Here it is. Avoiding conflict kills community. God the Father existed from before the world, before the time the world began in perfect unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He said, let us create humans in our image. One of the ways he created us was with a desire to know someone fully and to be fully known by them. To have a closeness with other human beings. The one thing I've told you over and over in the Garden of Eden that was not good was that man was alone. So God created a helper to correspond to his needs. But this is not just talking about marriage. We're talking about God wants us to have this closeness, this unity of fellowship where we are closer than blood relatives. And it is possible, but you got to go. Mature Christians always go. Third, step three, no third parties. If you don't go to someone, you become toxic and it won't be long before... Your bitterness spills and it stinks and it can poison others. Jesus says no third parties. He's very clear. You go to the person with whom you had the conflict. And this seems so obvious, but isn't that the last person we usually go to? Hello? We go to everyone except the person. Who's, we go, they're not involved and we say, don't you share my deep concerns about my brother in Christ who is obviously a deeply disturbed psychopath? Or maybe you use some other terms. 
It's more, much more fun to go to someone else and try to get them on my side than to do the hard work that Jesus said we're supposed to do. And, you know, if we want to be part of something different, we've got to make a commitment that we are going to go whether we want to or not, because our father in heaven said to go. We've got to decide right now how we will respond to people who will come to us because it's going to happen. It's happened in this church. It will happen in the future. Someone's going to come to you and they're going to vent about someone else who is a believer in Christ. You've got to decide right now how you're going to handle that. The other day I was in Walmart and, and see, um, I went to Walmart the other day and, and I am such a cheapskate that I refuse to buy clothes most of the time unless they're deeply, deeply discounted. So I'm at Walmart and I go over to the, uh, the clearance rack because it said $1 and I thought I could spend a buck. And, and that's just generally how I, I don't like to spend money on clothes. So I'll wear I, some, I know that's right, baby. I wear the same clothes from years ago. A few holes don't bother me. Little fuzzy balls on the, that doesn't bother me. So I go and, and, and I see that there's these, you know, those little dry star T-shirts that wick away moisture. They had a couple of those there. And I thought, hmm. So I think I bought three or four of them and went home and tried them on. And I loved them. They were awesome because I'm a sweating person. And that just anyway. So I loved them. And Janie goes, you should go get some more for a buck. And I went, you're right. So anyway, I, I kept going back to Walmart. And every time I would go in Walmart, I'd go by the clearance aisle. And I kept buying more and more. I, I now have 18 dry star T-shirts. <laughs> Because that is the kind of guy I am. Janie actually wanted me to count yesterday. Because she goes, how many? I keep washing them. They're everywhere. And so I've, I counted them. I've got 18 Dry Star t-shirts. I spent a buck each. That's awesome. So this one day I go back in Walmart. And I'm doing my customary run by the clearance thing. And that's where it happened. I'm, I'm totally not prepared for what is about to happen. I'm looking for clothes. And a friend of mine walks up to me. And he has some inside information about another church in town, and he wants to share. Now, obviously, I'm not a member of this church he wants to talk about. The really sad thing is, he's not a member of this church he wants to talk about. And he starts to talk to me about this, and I felt very, very uncomfortable. And so, I I quickly, I was like, dude, you know, kind of stunned, because I couldn't believe this guy, who, who should be a mature Christian mature follower of Christ. This guy is venting to me and I'm, I'm standing there really with this look on my face going, this is not right. And so I, I quickly got out of the conversation and I, I, I said, I gotta go. And it really was, I was in a hurry. So I said, I gotta go and I leave. And as I'm walking to the car, God said, not only was your conversation right there wrong, but your response was wrong. Because what I should have said was, Dude, we're crossing the line into sin. And if you want to talk about this situation, you need to go to that person. And and actually, I, I think this guy is the type of person that he would have stopped and gone, oh, you're right. So you must decide in advance because it's going to happen. Somebody's going to come to you and they're going to want to talk about a third person. And we don't put up with that trash around here. If we find out in small groups that you're talking about somebody that's not in small group, there will be somebody knocking on your door. Because gossip is a poison that we can't allow to thrive in the church because it will take the church down. We have to decide it's going to happen. And, and see, you don't have to be a punk. You can be gracious. You can be tactful. But you can very lovingly suggest that maybe it would be better if you talk to the individual instead of me. Because that's what Jesus said to do. All right, step four. Jesus said it needs to be face to face. Jesus wants us to avoid the temptation to embarrass someone publicly. All right. 
I know in this group, because we got a lot of smart alecks in this group. That's just who we are. It's kind of a personality as a church. I know some people in this group have wasted someone else in this group publicly simply for a laugh. But if we go to the deeper issue, I think you've probably done it to make yourself look superior or to feel better about yourself. Am I right? Nobody wants to volunteer for that one. Right? My family, we are the biggest smart alecks on the face of the planet. And we constantly, and we cross the line all the time. And then somebody gets mad and it's almost duking it out sometimes. And in fact, my older brothers, when they were in high school, they did. They went out in the backyard and started beating the snot out of each other. I think they've wanted to since then, but they haven't done that. They're both in their 163 and 159. Dude, I'm so just going to laugh at them and film it and put it on YouTube if they ever do that. See, Jesus says we can't do that. We can't try to make ourselves look superior if we want to reconcile with that person. So we're just, we're to go and discuss the problem. But sometimes what we do is we talk around the problem or sometimes we'll actually put it in the form of a question. For example, a wife says to her husband, honey, wouldn't you like to clean out the garage today? And she has this innocent smile on her face. The husband thinks for a moment, discovers that deep down in his heart, at the core of who he really is, that, in fact, no, he would really not like to clean the garage today. And so he proceeds to tell her, proud of his newfound self-awareness. And since she didn't mean the question, didn't mean for it to be a question or even a suggestion, she's now twice as mad as before that, in fact, the garage is not going to be clean today. Right? That's never happened in this group. The way you talk about the problem goes a long way toward determining whether the problem gets solved or not. Well, in other words, what I'm saying is don't beat around the bush, but also don't no verbal diarrhea allowed. Y'all know what I'm talking about when you just keep going about the other person and this and this and this and you just add on, add on, add on, add on. That's not helping the situation. What we've got to do is practice verbal discipline and verbal discipline says, here is the issue that hurt me. And because I value you so much, I want to talk about the issue because I don't want anything to be in between us. If someone came to you like that, would you be receptive to that type? If not, you need to grow up because that's what big people do is they come to you. They respect you. They talk about the issue because if you if you just pile on stuff and if you use fighting words, fighting words are always, never, always. You don't care. um, You don't care about this. You don't care about me. You never. All that does is pours gasoline on the flame and ensures That it's going to escalate, not resolve. Well, okay, why do we have to go and why do we have to go only the person involved? Here it is. This is the bottom line and this is why we fail. Here's the motive. To win them back. The sole purpose of confrontation is to win them back. Jesus said it in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. At the top of our agenda, according to Jesus, is the motivation to resolve the conflict. 
It's the idea of winning back our brother in Christ, not winning the argument. See, Jesus knows that it's possible to win the argument and lose your brother or sister in Christ. I tell married couples this all the time. It is possible to win, and it's probable that if you try to win all the time and you do win all the time, you will lose your spouse. Happens all the time. Because I have to win. A much smarter thing is to win your spouse. And it is possible to even have a win-win solution where both of you stay at the table long enough that you both walk away and go, that was a better idea than I had in the beginning. Jenny and I do this all the time. When we stay there and we keep talking, we both come to a conclusion that this was better than our original idea. And we go, wow, I think that God intended it to be like this. And conflict can actually draw you closer if you go to win the person back, not to win the argument. Now, Jesus uh, isn't merely suggesting that we be restored to other Christians. He's demanding it. The whole object of steps one through four is to reconcile with the other person. And if reconciliation isn't your motivation, you are not ready to go. You're not ready to do steps one through four. You have to admit that sometimes reconciliation is not our goal. We want to hurt the other person because they hurt us. That means your heart's messed up. And sometimes the wound is too fresh. If someone wastes you today, you, don't, you may not be able to go immediately because the wound is too fresh. And you are too much going on feelings and not on, on uh, thoughts uh, or, or on concrete facts. But really, the truth is, most of the time, we'd rather nurse our grudge than obey Jesus Christ. So... He's demanding that we live in unity and community for Jesus Christ, community in the Bible is worth the pain and the effort that it takes. And it's not just what Jesus said when when one of the first churches was having problems. Um, This is your memory verse, by the way, Galatians 6, 1. Paul was talking to the Galatian church. He says, if someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. Pretty good, huh? Let's read that again. And you're going to get this. I want you to memorize this. Put it on your mirror. Put it on anything that you'll go over. it. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him. Save your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. See, I've told you before that the scripture, I, I, God did this on purpose. I'm convinced. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew and, and Aramaic and the New Testament's written in Greek. And in those languages, when you said a word, it had a word picture behind it. So in this verse, restore actually has the idea, if you were to say it to a Greek person in in the first century or even now, the the word would be um, to heal or set a broken bone. So if you have a broken bone that's jacked up, this idea restore is you make it where it can heal. So the idea is when I reconcile, I go to a person and I make it so that our relationship can be reset, restored, and healed. That's the idea of restoration. Now, if you've done all of this, And the relationship with the Christian is still messed up. Then you get to go to step six. Step six is ask for help. If the offender refuses to acknowledge what they've done, then and only then you are free to share with one or two mature Christians. The key is mature Christians. This is very, very important. We share with these mature Christians because it is possible... That I can't see my fault in the situation. And as they pray, they begin to understand that I am the one who is wrong. And they may need to tell me, dude, you are the one who needs to ask for forgiveness. Sorry. But if they feel the cause is right, 
They can go with me and then they can be the witnesses, the two or three witnesses that stand before the church if we have to go to the next step. But only after you've done steps one through five is it permissible to share with one or two mature believers. Is that what we do? Do we go through this whole process and then we get to step six and we share? No, 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 no. We start with immature believers because we can easily get them on our sides. Step seven, if this still does not reconcile you with the person, you ask the church for help. What started as a private problem between two people is now out in the open for the whole church to see. And if by the time the matter has come to the church, the offender has not yet repented and asked for forgiveness, then he or she must be disciplined is what the Bible says. Church discipline. We can no longer treat them as a fellow believer in Christ because they have forfeited that position by their actions. We can only treat them as someone outside the church, which is like a tax collector or sinner in that day. Now, here's the key. We treat them as someone outside the church. We don't hate them, but no longer can we put them in close fellowship because their actions are harming the bride of Christ. And if you're doing anything that's harming my bride, you and I will have issues. And if you're doing anything that will harm the bride of Christ, that's what the church is called. Then you have issues with God. Now, there was a situation, I just was rereading this this morning, in the New Testament, in the Corinthian church, where Paul says, you Corinthians are putting up with sexual immorality in your church that is so blatant, so gross, that not even non-Christians do this. There was a man in the church who was living with, having sexual relationship with his stepmother. We don't know all of this stuff, but this was such a blatant deal that, that the, the church was going, oh, look how much compassion we have. We, we are so non-confrontational and so loving that any type of sin can exist in our church. Now, we're never told about the, the, the mom, the, the stepmom. We're told about the, the dude. So he must have been a believer and the mom must not have been a believer. And so he is blatantly living in sin. And Paul says, okay, here's the deal. You've gone to him. They've gone through this whole process. He says it is time to kick him out of the church and turn him over for the destruction by Satan. Now, not destruction of his life because Paul, his whole idea was he needs to be reconciled. He needs to be restored. But as long as he was blatantly in sin and thumbing his nose at God and thumbing his nose at the bride of Christ, Paul says, kick him out. And then by the time 2 Corinthians comes around, this is a lot of time, and there's actually even a lost letter. 1 Corinthians, the first letter we have, there's a lost letter from Paul. We, we learned about it in 2 Corinthians. But when 2 Corinthians comes about, that's in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says kick him out. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, okay, this dude has repented. It's time to restore him. See, that's the key. God does not have to forgive you. God is not required to forgive you if you have a hard heart. Nowhere in scripture does it say that, that I can go and just do anything I want to. And God, you have to forgive me. That's like a spoiled and petulant little child. The Bible says that when you have the right condition of heart, God lovingly forgives you and restores you. And so when this guy repented, Paul says, it's time to bring him back in the church. Now, when we're talking about church discipline, we're not talking about a bunch of Christian policemen running around, you know, checking, checking your life and videotaping. Now there's so much videotape everywhere. That's not what we're talking about. Church discipline instead is God exercising his control through a local body of believers in order to restore a person. 
And every time that we have ignored churches I've been in, because I've been doing this for 27 years now, churches that I've been in that we've done, we've ignored church discipline. It causes a division and eventually causes a split. Every time that we've done church discipline, what I believe God says, it is not fun and I, I do not like it. But every time we've done it, even in this church, God has eventually restored the person. And I'm going to tell you, in our nine-year history, we've had to do this a few times. And, and it's not even appropriate to, to, to talk about what all happened. But I'm going to tell you this. By looking around, you would never know who those people were that were disciplined by the church. Because they have repented and they've been restored and they're serving our Savior today. That's what happens. And in fact, some of our greatest services were when we restored those people. When I would say to the church, okay, you've heard their heart. How do you respond? And, and every time the church rose to their feet and gave a standing ovation to the person who was restored. And people would walk down the aisles and throw their arms around them. Say, we, were, we so were waiting for this day that you would come back. That's the church that Jesus Christ died to establish. Now, we're going we're gonna to do a quick evaluation for you. I want you to take your registration cards, turn it over on the back, and we're going to do some one to ten scores. And we're going to go each through these steps because I want you to see very clearly where you need to make improvement. All right, so on the back, you write the number one. You got seven of these to write down, so leave enough number. So number one is admitting conflict. On a scale of one to ten, one is total avoidance. I would rather vomit than, than confront anyone. Ten is, I point out every conflict I see in my life and every life around me. You're probably somewhere in the middle there, so I want you to write down the number where you see yourself on admitting that conflict happens in your life. Does that make sense? Number two, you go. All right? One, the one on the scale is, I find it almost impossible to initiate conflict. Ten is, I'm eager or at least willing to confront people who hurt me. Number three, no third parties. One is, I tend to work through my feelings by talking to others without going directly to the person who hurt me. Ten is, I almost never talk about my conflicts with others until I've directly confronted the other person. Where are you on the scale? One to ten. Number four, face to face. One is I find verbal jabs with others listening an effective way to get my point across. Ten is I almost always find a way to say my confrontational words when I'm alone with the person. Where are you on the scale? One to ten. Number five, to win them back. Number one is when I'm in conflict, I tend to try to win the argument. Just be gut level honest. Number ten is I want to fix the relationship. Number six, ask for help. Number one, if you're a one on the scale, is I have harmed the church by asking the wrong people for advice. And it doesn't necessarily have to be this church, but if in your past that's been your pattern, then you put a one. Ten is I only talk to the most mature Christians in my church after going through steps one through five. Just going to let you in on a little secret. Nobody better put a ten on that one. And I'll show you why on number seven. Ask the church for help. One is I have tattled on others to church leaders. 
This is my biggest pet peeve. Is when one of you has a conflict with someone else and you call me and want me to fix it. What is that like? Yesterday, my children were arguing. I was in another room, heard them arguing. Called them in and I said, what's the deal? They told me what the deal was. I said, do you want me to fix it? No, sir. We'll handle it. And they did. Because I would have fixed it real easily. They would not have liked it, but I would have fixed it. See, when you tattle to me, what you're really doing is you're showing your level of maturity or immaturity in Christ instead of going to the person. Ten on this one is, I only go to the church after faithfully going through steps one through six. Now, I'm just curious. Have any of you ever gone through steps one through seven? Let me see your hand. Anybody? I have. And when you do it God's way, he will miraculously, supernaturally restore relationships. But you've got to be willing to go. Bow your heads for just a moment. I want you to ask God to show you very clearly where you're failing him and the church. Would you take a moment and just say, God, show me if and where I'm failing. And we talked a little bit about this last week. We're going to bring it back up. I want you to ask God, who do I need to go to? Father, would you change our church into a radically loving, radically obedient, radically inclusive group of believers? who reflect the heart of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And would you start that process today? In Jesus' name, amen. Take your registration cards if you would and fill those out for me. A um, couple of things. Don't forget to go out and, and check your name, highlight your name if you are coming tonight. Uh, if there's misspellings, correct your name because we, we typed that in kind of quickly. Um, but put, check that out. There are some memory cards at the back. If you're interested in taking a memory card, um, there's two men back there that will hand those out to you as you go. We have three baskets. One is our joy basket. Um, in order to take ownership of the church, one of the steps is you give, you contribute. If, if you receive something, if you are fed something on a regular basis here, then God expects you to contribute financially to the ongoing process of the church. If you're a guest, we never ask for a dime of your money because we believe mature followers of Christ give. And, and we'll give sacrificially because we don't want people to go to hell. And we want to build the right type of church. So be sure and give there. We're, we're somewhere between eight and $10,000 behind our budget for the year. And, and if, if, if we as a group take that on, we can be caught up by the time the, the year is over. Some of you haven't been given, you need to give. Some of you maybe need to give a little more sacrificially. But ask God what, what your part is. Um, second basket is registration card basket. Uh, we just make weird noises because we're the weirdest church in, in Palestine. Um, and we're proud of it. Um, 
that's where if you have prayer concerns, put those on there. Uh, if you're interested in small groups, you can you can put it on there. But but be sure and check the uh, um, the table back there. And then the third basket is our bagel basket. We're trying to get out of debt because we believe that God wants to continue growing this church in the future. When we pay this building off, we're going to start saving like crazy so we can build a new worship center right over here. Last week, we had almost 90 children back in our children's area, and that is almost capacity. So somewhere in the interim, in the, in the months ahead, we're going to have to go to two worship services so that we can even have enough room for all of our children. So we're trying to get excellent in doing one service so we can go to two. But then eventually we want to build a new worship center right out here on the, the uh, parking lot so that we can reach more people who need to hear what Jesus has to say. And, and I, I'm excited about that. I want to be a part of it, and I think a lot of you do too.